On today's episode, we're going to be talking about starting solid foods and your baby's first family meals. We're joined today by feeding therapist Melanie Potok. Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I'm your host, Kristen Saxena. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about starting solid foods and your baby's first family meals. We're joined today by our guest, Melanie Potok. Melanie is a speech-language pathologist and a feeding therapist who's written multiple articles and books on feeding kids. Her most recent book is about responsive feeding when starting solid foods. I'm very excited to have Melanie here joining us today. Well, thanks for joining us, Melanie. It's so nice to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this. Well, I have been very excited to have you on our show. You are a speech language pathologist and feeding therapist. You're the author of several books, as we can see if you're watching the video behind you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I love that. And also you worked with or you currently work with uh, Dr. Namali Fernando or Dr. Yum, um, who has been a previous guest on our show for anybody that caught that episode. She is a dear friend of mine. We met on Facebook about 10 years ago, you know, as all good friendships start right. <laughs> uh, on the other end of the country than I am. And we've written uh, books together and created a preschool food curriculum together. We um, often go to the American Academy of Pediatrics and talk to pediatricians there. So um, she it was so kind to connect me with you. And I'm just so glad I get to talk to you today about responsive feeding. Yes. So I was really excited. Your most recent book is Responsive Feeding and talking mostly about uh, weaning babies or starting solid foods with babies. So on the show, we have talked about responsive feeding before, but most of the discussion we've had has actually kind of related around early infancy and breastfeeding and bottle feeding, like responsive bottle feeding. So I love this, this sort of next steps, but under that same subject and talking about responsive feeding. So probably the first um, question as parents usually have when they're starting solids, the first thing is usually, well, when do I know it's time to start solids? So, you know, as a that that recommendation has changed i think a little bit over time even when my kids that are now like 7 to 13 it was leaned more towards that like 4 to 6 months and i know with my kids i was so excited to start solid foods i started them all probably closer to that 4 month mark but now they've moved um the recommendations are more solid to say let's wait closer to that 6 month mark and can you talk a little bit about why why it's maybe more important to start near that six month point? Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, the more we learn, right, over time, we know what's going to be best, especially in terms of gut health for babies, but also in terms of um, their ability to really start to eat safely. 
And so we really consider a motor window. We consider a gut health or immunity window. And um, we look at various uh, readiness cues in general. In general, what a parent wants to look for is that baby is able to sit up on their own. Maybe they need a little bit of support in some of these bigger high chairs, of course, or they can't sit for very long periods, but they have good trunk and shoulder and, and head and neck control. But if they were to sit in a standard high chair for 20 minutes, they, it was, they were just fatigued. You know, that's still okay. They might need some extra boosting around the hips and that sort of thing. Um, we typically see kids ready from a motor perspective in terms of gross motor closer to six months. And then from a fine motor perspective, which is chewing and a little bit of self-feeding where they're just starting to grab and explore and bring things up to their mouth. It's so cute. Um, <laughs> then we, that's a little closer to six months as well. And then of course, we do have some early research that shows that about five and a half to almost six months is the ideal time to introduce foods in terms of that immunity and gut health window. So I usually recommend talking to your pediatrician, see where your baby is developmentally, but also to look for those readiness cues where baby's just really interested in solid foods. They tend to kind of want to reach out and, and bring things up to their mouth. They're really interested in your food and they're mouthing a lot of toys and they just seem to have a passion for foods. It's like, oh, I think this kid wants to eat. And I think parents' intuition is, is such a good one to follow as well. Definitely. And I always said, too, you know, we always recommended that's a conversation that's probably best to have with your pediatrician at that four month mark, Um, especially, you know, that that your physician can also take into account, you know, was this a term baby? Are there any other developmental milestones that we need to consider that are specific to your baby or growth concerns or anything like that? So I would normally recommend to parents not to wait till that six month visit, but probably if it hasn't come up at your four month visit, I think that's a great conversation to have at that visit. Great advice. When you talked about that, what I found the most interesting, um, can you talk a little bit more, elaborate more on that sort of immune and gut window? Because I found that to be the most fascinating. Well, you know, keep in mind that I'm not a pediatric gastroenterologist, but I sure love to do my research. So I have lots of research in responsive feeding um, about the fact that a baby's microbiome, about their gut health in general, it's really able to start to break down food particles, food proteins, et cetera, a little closer to six months. And so when we introduce food too early, we have some early research now that shows that that may not be the best thing to do for a baby's gut health. It's so tempting because we're just ready for those Kodak moments, right? We just, oh, like, I just want to start solids. It's so exciting. But if we can wait just maybe another week or two, again, talk to your pediatrician at that four-month visit, they're going to know what's best. And, And also consider family history. Would would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. I mean, especially in terms of, you know, things like celiac disease um, and then allergies like food allergies that run in the family. But that was always, you know, the even of of your is that what you say lore (laughs) when when back in the day they used to say you know to avoid all those allergenic foods um and now 
they've actually found that, you know, avoiding those foods may actually be predisposing a lot of kids to allergies. And so now it's sort of this early introduction or earlier introduction of things that typically, you know, eggs and nut products and things of that nature that we typically think of as allergenic foods. Um, But it seems like now there's maybe almost this like sort of magical window that can give us our best odds of avoiding those things. I just think it's fascinating. It is so fascinating. I think we've really shifted our thinking from volume to variety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're Kids really need a lot of different variety of taste and aroma and safe textures for those first six months to develop not only their palate, because they're really willing to try a lot of foods, um, but the more we keep rotating through that variety, the more likely we are to end up with a child who loves all kinds of food when they start to enter those toddler years. And, and they tend to naturally become a little bit more pickier, but um, that early exposure we know for sure really, really helps to raise an adventurous eater. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about the specifics of kind of how you suggest introducing solids, but I also wanted to um, talk a little bit about the purpose of solids in sort of those early days, because I know um, in pediatrics, a lot of times we'd have um, families wanting to introduce solids with the thought that it's going to help with baby's sleep. Um, <laughs> that was a, a one that we would get a lot. And then another misconception that had a lot to do with starting solids in relation to teeth coming in. So can you talk a little bit about the place that solid foods um, occupy in the diet of, of a baby under one year old? Yeah, definitely. I think the reason why those thoughts came about is because, I mean, that's something my mother taught me. My grandmother was like, put cereal in the bottle. She'll sleep better. You know, these are all things that are kind of passed down through generations. But we know today that doing things like that don't, it doesn't really help with sleep. Um, I think it makes a parent feel better. Maybe (laughs) the parent sleeps a little bit better. And as a mom myself, I totally understand that. I um, really... I want all of your listeners to think about feeding as a developmental process. So it's just like learning to crawl, walk, run, right? Yeah. And we do things to help kids with those gross motor skills as we boost them along. Well, the same is true for introducing solids because learning to bite down, to have a up and down munching chew, to have more of a rotary chew, to learn to suck through a straw. All of those are developmental milestones. And um, what the role that food plays, if I give you two examples, is that for example, sucking puree or mashed foods off of a finger or a spoon or shoot just, you know, a big piece of, Let's say you've got a a big piece of broccoli that's too big for a kid to bite off and we don't have to worry about choking, but that stem is the perfect thing to suck puree off of, right? Whatever you want to use, that that early sucking motion eventually leads to learning how to chew. And when we gnaw on our fingers or gnaw on the spoon or we're using a pre-spoon with self-feeding, whatever it happens to be, as long as it's safe, that early gnawing then emerges and eventually becomes a rotary chew. And there are lots of steps that happen with that. 
But really introducing solid foods is not only important from a nutritional standpoint, but it's really important to help with the fine motor development that happens in the mouth, mouth development. Yeah, and I loved, what I really loved um, was the approach. You had a quote that I highlighted in the book, and you said, think of mealtimes like food school, where we bring joy and connection to the classroom while learning about new foods. And I thought that that was beautiful. And probably, you know, in addition to that, learning about new foods and also learning the skills required for eating. Um, And I just thought, what a great mindset to come to starting solid foods with. Um, Because I think that a lot of the anxiety that parents have surrounding this aren't, aren't because they're thinking of it as food school or ways to help their child learn about new foods or learn new skills. It's mostly that they're concerned about the growth and nutrition that the child is supposed to be getting, they think, through these foods. Um, so I love that approach. And I think that that mindset really helps sort of bridge into why something like responsive feeding at this time is so important. And Yes, I'm having so much fun talking to you. (laughs) Yeah, because if you think of yourself as the classroom teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and that you're there just to help guide your child, you're not there to make them learn, right? Teachers Mm -hmm. don't do that. Teachers gently guide and encourage and and foster a love for learning. Well, when you think about your time at Family Mealtimes as being the same thing, this is really a chance for kids not only to learn about taste and texture and aroma and senses that we think about up near our mouth, but also with our hands and develop the fine motor skills, like first raking the peas with their hands and trying to put a few peas in their mouth, or eventually emerging to an immature pincer grasp to a more mature pincer grasp by about a year. And all of that, as I said before, is developmental. And so food and interacting with food, enjoying food together does more than just put food in the belly. It actually helps develop fine and gross motor skills and cognitive skills as well. Yeah. And I think that that really speaks to why it's important to really look for that window because, you know, starting too early, they're maybe just not ready from a motor standpoint or maybe like we discussed this immune and sort of gut standpoint. But waiting too long can also make it difficult for the baby to kind of learn those skills and create even a little bit of a developmental type delay because you've you've neglected to sort of help them acquire those skills from an early age. Yes, we And I'm sure you see this at your various well checks where babies have lingered on purees for too long. Now, I'm a big fan of purees. Uh, Purees help to develop the intrinsic tongue muscles to help kids learn to move their tongue from left to right and develop a mature swallow pattern and all the things that speech therapists like to talk about. (laughs) But when we linger on them for too long, meaning um, into um, and past the ninth month, and we're not doing any safe handheld solids, like pieces of avocado or a soft sweet potato, that kind of thing, where babies can learn to actually mush and chew, then we stall the development of chewing. And now we do end up with a feeding delay. And those little babies end up on my caseload. And we can boost things along, but we have a little bit of catching up to do. Mm-hmm. So I do want to talk a little bit about feeding methods or ways that you can start solids. But before that, can you just, in your own words, then describe what does 
responsive feeding look like when we're talking about starting solid foods? Yeah. So when we think about responsive feeding, think about it as a dance. Both partners, you and your baby, are part of this beautiful dance together. The baby is actually doing more of the leading, surprisingly, and you're watching for baby's cues to decide where you're going to go on the dance floor. You're reading, you're, you're communicating with each other. It's a very back and forth reciprocal experience. So what you might, what it might look like is if you were going to present a spoon with purees, it might look like you presenting the spoon with a smile on your face. There's good research that shows a smile really helps the baby to take that bite and build that confidence that this is going to be good stuff. Makes <laughs> sense, right? Mm -hmm. And and um, watch for that baby to just lean forward slightly to open their mouth and say, say, I'm ready. And then you can put the spoon in. Now, let's say that you decide you don't want to present a spoon and you want to follow more of a baby-led self-feeding model. That's okay too. But the important thing is that we're still reading baby's cues. Is baby eager to continue the dance? Do they need to pause and rest for a minute? Or are they just done? And you know, when we're first starting solids, sometimes babies are done in five minutes and that's okay. They're still learning and they're building their stamina for sitting in the chair and for interacting. And this is a brand new experience. So it can be a little bit overwhelming for some of our children. So just read that baby's cues, follow their dance steps and just enjoy the dance together. I love that. Well, and I think it speaks to, like I said on the, show before we've talked about responsive bottle feeding specifically and a lot of the same things it just has to do with looking for your baby's cues in terms of when they're hungry when they're full um, when they're no longer interested in eating so it becomes it, just that same idea but as we take it to starting solids and then as i think about that this is the same thing that you know we counsel parents of toddlers and school age kids and teenagers i mean it all has to do with sort of that division of responsibility and like the child's job from day one is to sort of decide how much they're going to eat of what you're offered, if at all. And so, you know, starting from the very beginning where we're breast and even bottle feeding, to me, this is like, how does that translate to this next step as we're introducing solid foods? Exactly. And as the American Academy of Pediatrics says about responsive feeding and responsive feeding is endorsed by the AEP, by the World Health Organization, by UNICEF, we could go on and on. They always say you provide, your child decides. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I really want your listeners to think about is the difference between responsive feeding with breast and bottle is that with breast and bottle, there's basically two different things to sex and swallow, right? Yeah. Breast milk or formula, and maybe two different ways of getting that into your belly, breast or bottle. For some of our children with special needs, we might have some other options. But when it comes to solids, and again, getting back to our discussion about variety, it can be a little overwhelming at first, but it doesn't mean the kids don't want to do it. And that's where reading your baby's cues about needing to pause 
explore and then decide whether they're going to keep going in terms of tasting is so important. So in response to feeding in my book, because I'm a speech pathologist, I talk a lot about communication and introducing baby signs early and knowing what a baby is really trying to say to you, even if they can't pronounce the words. <laughs> well, and I think that's a good point, too, is because it, it does get more complicated, certainly, yes. as you start to introduce those foods. And I think that um, sometimes it's very easy as a parent to get the idea that maybe a child doesn't like a certain food because they are um, making funny faces or maybe not that excited about it the first time. Um, but it's also keeping in mind, well, this is a brand new experience for them. So what might seem like sort of a goofy face might just be a sort of confused or, wow, this is new <laughs> experience. So right. not to be totally turned off, but also, you know, to note and to notice these things, because if it's consistent, <laughs> um, you know, maybe there is something more significant going on or it's just a, a more difficult food for that child to accept. Yeah. It, do you remember that whole trend years ago about babies eating lemons? It was like all over YouTube. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, parents were giving their baby a little slice of lemon so they can get the cute reaction. And the look on the baby's face was like, oh, my gosh, it's so easy to interpret it as I don't like this. Yep. But if you just wait five or six more seconds, those babies always came back for another taste. It was just a new sensation. Yes. And that's something to really remember to just pause and wait and give baby a chance. They often come back for more interaction with that food, even if it's just a squish and smell it. That really contributes to them learning about the food. Definitely. So, so I was really excited to talk to you about this. So in terms of ways to start solids, I think any parent that's starting to get into this period of their baby's life, if you look online, which is where everybody looks, right? Um, yeah. About how do I do this? Um, you know, the, the big sort of debate or the two fields of of thought seem to be purees, which is sort of the more traditional method of feeding babies, um, and what's called baby-led weaning. And so right. I would say, when my kids were little, um, you know, baby-led weaning, I feel like was just coming on, it was a little bit more like, I don't know, like kind of cutting edge, if you will. Um, and I, I remember, I mean, I was a pediatrician and I knew like you could read the research and it was a safe way to feed babies, but I still was so nervous about it. Like I, I definitely fed my babies like all purees until they were kind of up doing finger foods. Um, but now I'd say it's become a little bit more mainstream to do the baby led weaning. Um, so you start to see, and I feel like they're maybe the more hip vocal voice right now. <laughs> um, but I love um, in your book, you kind of talk about how, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or. Um, and really, there can be benefits and drawbacks to both. So can you talk us through a little bit about what each method is and what you see as sort of the perks or pros and cons of each? You bet. You bet. <laughs> So uh, baby led weaning was established out of the UK by Tracy Marquette and um, Jill Rapley. And they wrote a whole series of books about baby led weaning. And then there were several spinoffs from there and other people also wrote about it. I wrote about it. Um, I had a book called Baby Self Feeding. But one of the things that I talked about in that book is that, you know, purees really do serve a purpose. And if you would like to offer safe 
handheld solids to a baby and follow more of a baby led weaning model, which I'll go into in a second, but you'd also like to do purees. That's awesome. Go ahead. And that's the whole point behind responsive feeding. If you want to do more of a hybrid approach or you just want to do purees or you just want to do baby led weaning, I mean, not to sound corny, but you do you. The main thing is, is that you're communicating and you're watching baby's cues and you understand what baby needs in order to do any of those safely. So let's break those down. So baby led weaning traditionally is not offering purees, not actually offering anything from your hand to baby's mouth, but putting safe solids in front of the child. They often start with things like, um, oh, sweet potato, avocado. Think about anything that you could mush between your fingers. And um, it's anything that the family's eating maybe adapted slightly for a baby's ability to squish and swallow. And then baby begins to learn to grab, bring it up to their mouth. And there's often a lot of early gagging with yes. baby lead weeding, which we can talk about too, if you'd like. Now with the more traditional method of starting with purees and then a little thicker mash and then going to safe solids and being willing to present food to the baby's mouth, either on your finger, on a, by presenting a spoon, um, by you know holding up a piece of avocado and letting them take a nibble off your slice. That's a more traditional approach. But in my experience, 20 years of something of doing this, you know, most parents want a hybrid approach. They want to know how they can offer a variety of foods in a really safe way. And they recognize that we purees all the time. I mean, I had yogurt for breakfast this morning. You know, what about dips? What about, oh my goodness, we could just go on and on. So yeah. the, the, the point is, is that baby led weaning, I think it's really important that you go to the original source if you really want to follow that method to a T or to a reliable source. And if you have any questions about that, your, your followers can just DM me and I'm happy to recommend. Um, I have a baby led weaning course on my course library that's taught by a registered dietitian, not even taught by me, that I think is one of the top ones out there. I, if you want to follow more of a traditional approach, that's awesome too. And if you want to do a hybrid approach, then I think the book Responsive Feeding is the one for you because it's going to focus on how to keep babies safe, what skill and ability you can help boost along to keep continue to keep babies safe, but also how to find that happy medium where it just isn't so stressful. So whatever the parent wants to do, I support them 100%. We're just going to make it all about communication. I like that. And I think like with most parenting things, I think in as you look back in retrospect, being rigid about rules tends to be more of a detriment than a, than a positive in terms of, like you said, kind of communicating with your baby and being flexible about the methods that are working best for your family. There it is right there, being flexible about the method that works for your family. If you try a specific method and it just doesn't feel right to you or it's creating stress in the household, the last thing we want is stress around mealtimes. Then definitely talk to your pediatrician, do a little research, grab some good books and figure out what do I need to shift here so that all of this is happier and more comfortable for baby and for you. So that's where that that intuition comes in and the communication above all else. 
So then let's, you, you touched on this a little bit, but I, like I was saying, when my babies were starting solid foods, um, the idea of doing baby led weaning. And at the time, I think, you know, the visual of that was like a baby with like a big stalk of celery chewing on it. You know what I mean? It was like all these yes. sort of scary yes. looking, crunchy vegetables. Right. And when you exactly. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, and I think every parent, even myself, it's like, I know infant CPR, but that gagging I don't think there's any parent it doesn't matter how much you know when you see it there's some your blood pressure rises and you're like eyeballs bug out and you're like oh my gosh they're choking right so number one can you discuss a little bit the difference between gagging and choking and how gagging on the one hand can be is a very normal part of early feeding um, but can also be detrimental I think if it's excessive um and then what the difference between gagging and choking is and then beyond that you know how do we if you're choosing to do more of a baby led weaning um you know what are the things you need to keep in mind to make sure that we're not creating choking hazards for our babies absolutely absolutely Gagging and choking are two totally different things. And if you Google my last name, Potok, P-O-T-O-C-K, and the word gagging or the word choking, you'll see an article that I wrote for the American Speech Language Hearing Association that will pop up and really give it to you all in detail. But let me go to, into it in brief right now. Um, gagging is the body's natural response to something in the mouth that might be entering the airway and the gag reflex is more toward roughly toward the front third of the tongue at first and that's why when babies are first putting even toys or teethers in their mouth at say four months they will often gag on them if they go a little bit too far back however we want them to explore far back in their mouth to help their brain learn oh, this baby's got control of this with their hand. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to gag right now. That process of playing with teethers and mouthing fingers and sometimes toes um, helps the brain to start to shift the gag reflex back slowly over time. And that takes many, many months. So at about the time that babies start solids, they will gag quite a bit. Often, you know, people always ask me how much and I don't get alarmed if a baby gags two or three times as they're trying new foods. As long as I model calm and I know that nothing's going in their airway because the gag, the reflexive motion of pushing up the larynx and pushing the tongue forward and raising the palate all will expel anything to the front of the mouth. That's the purpose. However, it's not 100% foolproof. And if it were, we'd never have kids choke, right? Mm -hmm. It's not 100%. So we do always want to keep an eye on baby as they're eating. Not, don't turn your back on them because choking, the difference is you'll often hear gagging. You know, you'll hear the sound. You'll maybe see their eyes water just a little bit. We've all had that experience with a strong gag. But with choking, there's typically very little 
to no sound. And the reason why is something's blocking the airway. So no air can go through the vocal folds or the vocal cords. Now we got a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's where you'll see baby's color start to change. They will start to turn blue or purple, typically around the lips or the eyes at first. They'll have a panicked look on their face. You might see lots of tears coming down their eyes because they are in a state of 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 fright and um it's an intense feeling that's where we want to be careful not to put our fingers in the child's mouth but instead to follow all those appropriate cpr and first aid procedures where we actually um will dispel the lodged object using the right approach so that's where red cross and first aid really comes in so i know you you recommend courses all the time to your patients not I mean, yeah, I recommend I everyone do that <laughs> just in Ab- case. Absolutely. Hopefully you never need it. <laughs> and I have a very inexpensive um, course on my video course library that, again, I don't teach. It's taught by a qualified instructor who's licensed, et cetera. And it's just such a good one to know exactly what to do. But to round out this discussion on gagging versus versus choking, what about kids who continue to gag a lot? Or what if they gag on purees? Mm Because definitely kids do that too. Kids who tend to gag a lot, meaning too much, will stop eating. They'll push the food away, they'll cry. They're like, this is uncomfortable. I'm scared, I don't wanna do this. That's when it's really important to talk to your pediatrician when you see that happening. Try to get it on video. If it's happening a lot, it might just be the rare occurrence. But if you see this as a trend, if you can video it and share it with your pediatrician, that's really helpful too, because they may decide to refer that child for a pediatric feeding evaluation. It could be that there's a motor or a sensory issue or perhaps a medical issue that's causing that repetitive gagging that's leading to discomfort and and frightening moments for the child and we don't want food to be frightening when it comes to purees a lot of kids will gag on purees at first too and sometimes it's um just the sensation of it but also it's just that they perhaps got the spoon too far in their mouth or perhaps you accidentally put the spoon too far in you can play around with that a little bit and actually put the spoon over where their molars are going to come in one day lateralize it and let them bite down on the spoon they'll get a little bit better control of the puree at first and then you can slowly shift it back to the center of their mouth and that'll help that gag go away but the more teethers the more chewing on fingers the more chewing on your finger the better that's going to help to desensitize that gag reflex in an appropriate and safe manner Yeah, well, I think that can be very, I mean, somewhat reassuring to parents. I I guarantee every time, I mean, every time my kids gagged, I still felt like, you know, hopefully I I made a calm face, but I doubt it. I'm sure I still was like, oh man. Um, But it's good to know, like you said, like anything, this is all like a developmental process. So it's not, unless you're very concerned that there's something more significant going on. Like you said, if children are starting to not enjoy the process of eating, Um, Or you just think this seems way abnormal compared to other babies I've seen. Um, But to kind of stick with the process to know that it's sort of a practice makes perfect or close to perfect. Um, And so if it's just sort of like you said a few times during a feeding, it can be very normal to gag and it should get better as they get older. And, 
and more common when they're trying a new sensation, a new food, a new taste, et cetera. Um, and I love the fact that you were so honest about that, that that put you on guard, even as a pediatrician who's, oh, you know, yeah. you're so well-trained in first aid, et cetera, et cetera. But the reason why it should put you on guard is because repetitive gagging can lead to choking. So again, you got to put on your best Academy Award performance, you know, and just be cool about it. But inside you're like, I'm watching this and smiling. I'm saying, yeah, baby, you can push it out, push it out with your tongue. But I'm also ready in case we move into a choking episode, which will honestly, um, we have a very good research study called the Bliss Study, shows that children, they can choke. You know, this is not an unusual occurrence. But if you know what to do because you're trained in first aid, CPR, the Heimlich maneuver, whatever it happens to be, depending on the age, it's going to be okay. Be sure, tell me if you agree with this. Be sure when you have any sort of choking episode to let your pediatrician know so they can make a note of it. Because if a child has two choking episodes in a row, I wonder about what's going on. And when I say in a row, I mean, you know, a few weeks apart. I wonder maybe that child needs a little help from an oral motor perspective. Um, but it's, it's not that unusual. And so it's so important, no matter what you're feeding a child, that you get trained in the right um, first aid approach. I totally agree. I mean, I would say even after our first one, it wouldn't be a bad idea to check in with your pediatrician. I mean, it may not be um, a sense where we need to be alarmed that there is a a motor or developmental issue with that first one, but I think it's a good time to check in like, you know, are we doing this at a developmentally appropriate age? Are we taking the safety precautions in terms of our food choices and just sort of the environment? Are we sitting up? I mean, are we doing everything we can from that standpoint just to make sure, you know, did somebody miss a message or or get a wrong idea about about what they should be feeding or how they should be feeding their baby? So and that's what those people are there for so to me it's like use your resources (laughs) use your resources yeah for sure so then you know um i loved also as i again i'm just in love with this idea as this sort of like food school that's what we should be kind of thinking about these early well really lots of you know from this point on um in terms of teaching our babies but what about first foods what are some of your favorite first foods. I'm sure people ask you about that all the time. Oh my goodness. There are so many, so many. Um, The main thing is whatever you're feeding your family, pick it up, give it a little squish between your thumb and your index finger. And if it squishes pretty easily, you're probably safe to cut it up in a safe way and provide it to your child. It can be a smidge flavorful in terms of spices, but if you're making something like a curry, you might decide to pull some of that out before you add all the extra spices if you like it extra hot and make a, a baby curry for, for your little one. You know, that still has all that flavor, of course, but doesn't have such intensity. Um, when you cut up the food for your baby, a couple tips on that, something like an avocado or a sweet potato, or, oh, I I love um, squash for this purpose. You can cut to just about the size of your pinky finger. And then baby can grasp it with their little fist and they can gnaw on that little wedge or that, that, that little finger of food and they'll be able to squish and swallow, squish and swallow. And it's that squishing that eventually 
emerges into a munch and then a rotary chew. When it comes to um, foods that are not as easy to pick up, like the curry, you know, maybe you'll pull out some of the squash or some of the pieces of the vegetable in there or shred a little bit of the chicken. Um, You can also throw that in a a blender real quick and make a mash out of it and offer it with a preloaded spoon. You can offer it on your finger. You can put a blob of it on baby's high chair because we love babies to get messy. It really helps to raise an adventurous eater the messier they get. And they can simply just play in it and suck it off their own hand. So again, think variety, more than volume, lots of opportunities to present different safe textures and pieces for your baby, but mostly Whatever you're feeding your family, just think about how could I take a few minutes to adapt this for my littlest one in the family and so that we're all eating the same meal. So same meal for the whole family. Yes. Well, and that brings me to like what I really wanted to talk to you about was this idea of this really being your baby's introduction. We talk about family meals on here like all the time because it's my favorite thing to talk about but this to me starting solids this is like that first time you get to like bring that baby really into the family meal so i love all the things that you're saying about you know this is such a great opportunity to first bring like the foods your family loves to eat and introduce them to your baby um i mean that this was like my absolute my absolute favorite time of feeding, I think, was starting solids, which is probably why I did it a little too early <laughs> back then. And I'm guilty, too, of, you know, our first food, I'm pretty sure with most of our babies was that like rice cereal. You know, I, they were still of that age. Yeah. And I mean, of course, yeah. when you're starting it at four months, it's pretty, pretty watery. <laughs> but right. um you know, back in the day it used to be, you know, start the cereals and then the vegetables because if they eat the fruits first, they're never going to like the vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. Sort of all of these old ideas about how we should feed babies. Whereas right. now I just love this idea. It's mostly about these exposures to such a variety of flavors and textures. And then sort of this great opportunity as we talk about family meals, sort of one one family, one meal, this is sort of, you'll have to modify it just for the motor sure. development of your child, but you yeah. can take all those same foods and you can make them appropriate for your baby. And I, and I am not like an overachiever mother, but I made most of our baby food because it wasn't that hard. Like if we were cooking for our, our family, you could usually it's not, I mean, babies don't eat that much. So you could take a bunch of it, you know, mash it up or puree it down. And that's that can make a lot of meals for a baby. So I, I definitely encourage people if that's something that they're interested in. And we still did, you know, the jars and the pouches and things for convenience. Sure. That wasn't every day. And, you know, some things are a little bit more complicated. But you could, like you said, you can take a curry or you can take all kinds of things that seem like these more complicated foods. And it's such a wonderful thing to be able to introduce your baby to and sets them up for enjoying the foods that, you're going to want them to eat with you as they get older. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And family mealtimes are, there's so many benefits to family mealtimes. And I really encourage the families that I work with, especially the ones starting solids, if it's possible to ditch the high chair tray and bring that baby's chair right up to your table, that's ideal. But even if you need to bring the whole uh, tray and chair up beside you, Babies love predictability. 
and knowing that a parent is going to be sitting beside them, even if they're just having a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. I love parents to be eating too and model what to do, but you know, that's not always possible. And they love predictability. I also encourage my families to come up with a way to mark the beginning of a meal, even as young as six months. And it's often just a quick little song. And babies will learn that as you sing this little made up song, whatever it happens to be, that, oh my goodness, it's time to eat. Um, I the, the beauty of, I start smiling. I just start talking about family meal times. Because, Me too. <laughs> yeah. Family meal times are like magic. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pressure on us to have these banquets of family meal times. But as I said, honest to goodness, if you, it's the evening and you're going to have a glass of wine and your little kids are going to have some of that leftover curry from last night, it's about connecting. Mm-hmm. It's about talking together. And I'll just give you a little tidbit about um, one of my favorite pieces of research as a speech pathologist around family meal times. Did you know that for toddlers, family meal times actually do more in terms of raising a, a child who have better reading, reading scores in middle school because they had regular family meal times as a toddler. In fact, the research found it's better than reading to your child, but do both. <laughs> we love yeah. reading. But that's how strong that research is, that when we sit around the table, even with our toddlers, what do we do? We tell stories. Oh, tell me what happened at preschool today. Oh, you know, that was so fun today when we were making the, that dinosaur game. That was really fun. Or, oh, mommy or daddy, um, today we went to the park and we went down the really big slide and we climbed up the slide together. We tell stories and we know for sure that storytelling is what improves reading skills. Mm-hmm. So the younger you start bringing your kids up to the table, the more you're doing in terms of their academics, even into middle school. Is that amazing? That, Very strong research on that one. Yes, and actually, it's funny you say that because I always say that that's one of the things that just blew my mind because especially when they said, you know, even more so than being read to. I feel like right? my jaw dropped. You're like, what? Not that you shouldn't. I mean, of course, it's wonderful yeah. to read to your child. Please read. <laughs> but if yeah. you only have time for one, you know, it's better to just bring that child. And it's easier, you know, bring that child to the table and just talk to them. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a five course gourmet meal. We put so much pressure on mm-hmm. ourselves. Like I said, cup of tea, leftover curry, talking together. That's a family meal. It can be breakfast. Mm-hmm. It can be sitting on a blanket at the park. That's a family meal. Absolutely. I love it. And I just love, you know, I think it's just so interesting how they seem such distinct times of life or maybe distinct approaches. But if you really think about it, I mean, the same things that we, you know, the, that we talk about with older kids and especially as we get into kids where parents are concerned about picky eating, it's really a lot of the same recommendations where it's this being together, um, bringing the joy to the table, keeping it about variety and about conversation and stress-free. Those things, you really lay the groundwork in these first in these first bites, really. You do, you do. You, we um, call it parenting in the kitchen. When you really focus on parenting in the kitchen, all the good things just spill over to parenting throughout the day. I love it. So um, before we let you go, I have a couple other questions. Number one, um, 
you know, as a feeding therapist, what what is the worst mistakes you might see parents make when they're first starting solid foods? You know, if you can't be the best, make sure you're not the worst. No, that's what, <laughs> what's like the worst thing you could do? Oh, my goodness. You know, I as a mom myself of two girls, one a very adventurous eater and one a very picky eater way before I got into this field. I have to say that the worst thing you can do is not seek out help. Mm-hmm. If you're stressed about the food that your child's eating or the food that your child's not eating or the way your child's eating or the way your child's having difficulty eating, we could go on and on. Please talk to your pediatrician about it. As a matter of fact, on my YouTube channel, I have a whole playlist on how to talk to your pediatrician about your concerns because, you know, I, I'm not just saying this because you're a pediatrician. I love pediatricians. My brother's a pediatrician, as a matter of fact. They are my favorite kind of doctor. But they are my favorite. <laughs> I might be biased. You guys have a hard job. Like you don't have a lot of time to cover so many different things in those well checks. And sometimes setting up a separate phone consult or a separate short appointment to just talk about the feeding concerns can make all the difference. And just stress that you're stressed. That's what I always say to the parents. This is stressing me out because the biggest mistake we can make as parents, besides not getting help, is allowing stress to come to family meal times. That's going to hinder all everything we talked about today. So I, I love would say that. that that's the number one thing. I love that. And I think like just to piggyback on that, just to make sure that to trust your intuition as the yes. parent, because you're there with that baby all the time. And I'd much rather, you know, have to reassure you 17 times that this is normal and okay, than miss what was maybe a real concern um, because it wasn't like brought to our attention in a way where we realized that it was so stressful. Cause like you said, sometimes it can be hard in a, in a small window of time. So I always encourage parents to realize you definitely are, you're with that child and you're their greatest advocate. So you should never be reluctant if you're not satisfied or something still isn't feeling right, just keep keep bringing it up and keep seeking yes. out help. And so on that note, what are some signs that parents might look for? Um, because we're all, I think as a parent constantly, you're always like, is that normal? Is that not normal? Is that normal? Is that no. not normal? So as a feeding therapist, what are some signs that a parent might see that says, okay, that this isn't maybe normal and this might be something that might require further investigation or feeding therapy. Yeah, well, from especially in the early years when we're talking about starting solids at about six months up to about age three, that early intervention period that's so important. We, when it comes to the baby starting solids, if you see gagging that feels extreme to you, where the child seems alarmed, where the child doesn't want to get in the high chair, where they really are are fearful of food, or they don't seem to be able to move it well in their mouth or having trouble moving their tongue from left to right, or it just looks different than the way your other kids did it. You know, that's a good comparison. Yeah. Um, those are just some early signs that that child might need a feeding evaluation. And if the worst thing that happens, as you just said, and you go to a feeding evaluation and you have an expert like me take a good look at your child eating and talk to you for an hour and they send you home with a couple of tips and they don't need feeding therapy, 
that's helpful information. But if they need a little bit of feeding therapy to boost things along, that's no different than sometimes a child needing a bit of physical therapy to learn to walk. Plenty of kids need that kind of support. And it doesn't mean anything's wrong. It just means they need a little tutoring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and they'll still go to graduate school of food. <laughs> they'll do great. So um, as the child gets older, though, I just want to briefly touch on what is typical garden variety picky eating and what is more extreme. Kids most often start to become a little pickier at about 18 months of age. And that's because growth really slows down after the first year, as you know, and they honestly are busy, They're like running about now and like life's exciting and you want me to sit at the table? I don't think so. So they're busy. They don't have as great of a hunger drive and not as big of an appetite and they don't have the greatest attention spans. So they've also discovered one skill. And that's no. <laughs> and they're supposed to do that. You know, hello, terrible twos, right? Cognitively, we want them to learn that difference. So when you throw all that into the picture, you're going to have a slightly picky eater as they approach age two, but they should emerge out of it at about age three-ish. If you feel like that your child has started to eat significantly less or only want to eat a handful of foods and is strongly refusing other foods. They don't even want those new foods on their plate sometime, or they freak out if you even, you know, suggest that we might be eating that. That is definitely something to talk to the pediatrician about because we don't want kids to fall into that picky eater trap. It's much harder to climb out of without early intervention. I totally agree because I always, you know, it is always good to make sure that you're making those regular visits, coming up with your concerns um, and not trying to because in the on the front end, I always say, you know, don't fall into this. It's very normal behavior for them to only maybe want to eat a few foods or have a few favorite foods. And like you said, yeah. you know, they're not growing as quickly. They're busy. They've learned that they're a little bit more autonomous and they're going to say no. And I always thought evolutionarily it made sense once you're a toddler and you're able to go off on your own it makes sense to be a little suspicious of things that you're not sure if you should be eating them or not, right? It's like a survival mechanism, really. It is. Um, so it's, it, it's a good yeah. sign that your baby's really developing normally. But normally I'm saying, you know, encourage parents to keep introducing foods, keep repeating foods that maybe weren't favorites from the beginning, because otherwise you create those patterns where they're like, this is my list of food I eat, and now everything's become even more foreign than it was before. But on the flip side, bring your concerns to your pediatrician. Make sure that you're bringing them in for their regular checks, that they're growing appropriately, because if there is something more significant going on, you want to be able to catch that as early as possible. Yes. Oh my gosh, such good points. And just to piggyback on that, especially right now where food is so expensive, um, it doesn't have to be a lot of food that you're exposing them to, a tablespoon at the most. So if there's a food that your child has been rejecting, you know how you get them back to loving it again? is by just continuous exposure, not every day, but just make sure those peas that they've turned off to show up, maybe a teaspoon or a tablespoon of them in a little cute cup every once in a while, they'll get back to them, but you gotta put them on the plate or they're yep. gonna forget about yep. them and, and it's gonna be a thing of the past. As you said, you'll, you'll really end up with a child who's food jagging and only eating a handful of foods. So we don't wanna fall into that trap. Exposure is everything. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. This has been wonderful. I think it was a great discussion on 
a very flexible, family-friendly, family meals-friendly way to start our babies with their first bites. Oh my goodness. Thank you. I'd love to do it again. It's so fun to talk to you. You too. And then I do want to make sure. So I thought this was a really great book. I think it's good for parents, but also for anyone um, that helps parents that are starting to feed their kids. So best way to get your book, this responsive feeding book is on Amazon or are there better ways to connect with your book? Wherever your favorite place is to buy a book, it is everywhere. Um, Amazon's the most popular right now to pick it up, but you know, please support your local bookstore as well. And you can get it, uh, the digital version. And it's also an audio version. I love a good audio book. Oh yeah. Yeah, all of my books are on my website at mymunchbug.com or melaniepotuck.com. They're one and the same, as well as all my video courses including my picky eater course that's taught with Dr. Namali Fernando, Dr. Yum, who you opened up with at the beginning of our chat. So I hope everybody will check that out as well. Me too. I highly encourage everyone to check it out. Really great resources. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I hope you'll tune in next week for another great episode. And if you're enjoying these episodes, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss one. 